OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Okay, perfect. Well, yep. as we always do, we like to start right away by just having casual conversation, make it nice and simple, clean and easy. So Leland, I'd like Lylan. to... Uh, sorry? Lylan. Lylan. I was uh, going through, I'm like, which is the best way? I want to make sure I don't screw that up. And I it's on my LinkedIn, it. actually, to how to it's pronounce it. it. It's on my LinkedIn. It's just, it shows how to pronounce it. Oh, I went on there. I actually went on there to see if I could listen to the audio recording and it didn't show. So my LinkedIn actually, uh, that my, my bio has a little blurb about how to pronounce my name. Ah, uh, I went in because you can do the same thing now in LinkedIn where you can see the, you can press. Oh, you can record? button. Yeah, and you don't have it. So huh. it doesn't say that. So I'm looking at it right now and that's why I was, uh, um, here, I'll show you. View profile. I went there specifically just to make sure. You can look on my screen. You can see there. Yeah, yeah. It's right beside your name that it shows it. It didn't. I was like, damn it. So I was already gone through all your videos. And I thought, oh, maybe it'll show there. So I wonder, uh, I don't know where to upload that feature, where to upload the voice, the recording. Uh, that's okay. I'll figure it out. Yep. I'll fix that. Done. All right. Well, either way, I didn't want to butcher your name. So. No. Yeah, the two tricks that I give my friends, uh, if they're into Disney characters, I'm uh, the Lylan King. <laughs> or if people are into alcoholic drinks, yeah. a long Lylan iced tea. Lylan iced tea. I long like Lylan iced tea, yeah. All right, well, welcome. Thank you. To uh, our podcast today, Ask an Angel. Very exciting to have you today um, for many reasons, but I'm going to start with the the more prominent one is that you're a Canadian living in New York. So that's I pretty am. cool. And uh, that always starts off a great conversation because we look for Canadians globally. And uh, when we find them, they always seem to be uh, the fun people that we get to have really good conversations with. But outside of that, um, there's lots of other things I want to dig into. But maybe we'll start off by if you could give us a little bit of a background on yourself, a little bit about where you kind of come from uh, and then where you're kind of currently at now and then one thing about you that nobody would know yeah so i was born and raised in a city of forty-five thousand people called cornwall ontario uh at the time when i was growing up the big two employers in cornwall ontario were domtar which is a pulp and paper mill and cil paint factory so it was really a factory town and it's uh, bordering between Quebec and Ontario, so very much of a bilingual city. Uh, I was one of the few kids in class with an English name. Um, and uh, come time to go to undergrad, as most of my friends went to the local French-speaking schools, uh, be it University of Ottawa or Laval, et cetera, I decided to break away and go to the University of Waterloo, where I could study with a Bachelor of Mathematics, major in computer science, minor in combinatorics and optimization. And really the two key things that drew me to Waterloo were the strength of the academic program and the global ranking of the school, uh, as well as a fantastic co-op system where we do six co-ops or by US terms, internships. Uh, and my last two were in California at Cypress Semiconductors and then Microsoft Web TV. 
And then I continued to work for Microsoft, first for Microsoft Research. Then I moved to Redmond, Washington to be part of the team that built the first ever version of .NET and Visual Studio.NET at Microsoft. So that you're was, the guy we need to go after about that .NET stuff. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine. You know, it was one of the most academically gifted teams I've ever been part of. Um, still, I was there 18 or 19 years ago, so the technology has evolved since then. Um, and you know, one of the reasons that Microsoft suggested the .NET team for me was because one of my prior co-ops was at IBM on the product that is now called Eclipse. It used to be called Visual Age for Java and Visual Age for Smalltalk. Um, and so, and that was before IBM released Eclipse to the open source community. So yeah, Seattle was great, uh, was at Microsoft, and then I really had the itch to go to a startup. And so I went to a company called Ask Me. Ask Me's product was similar to Yammer, which was similar to what Slack eventually became. And uh, the difference, the key difference being that we did not know about the freemium business model in 2003. The idea of giving your software for free to the enterprise with the understanding that at some point you'll charge the enterprise, that really didn't exist much. And uh, so at Ask Me, we're trying to sell our product at a high cost per head. Um, and most of the enterprises really loved what we were building, but could not justify the spend to sign on the dotted line with us. From there, I stayed at another Seattle-based company called Aquantive, and specifically the Atlas division of Aquantive. And I had five of the best years of my career there. We built, I had multiple product lines. We continued to scale and scale the business. And fortunately, in my last year there, we were acquired by none other than Microsoft for $6.3 billion. And so for me, it was a great experience of what it takes to really scale a business. Um, we made some mistakes along the way. Clearly, we also made some positive steps along the way too to reach that level, to reach that level of success. And um, we also had a really special culture. When, when alumni from that company get together at a conference or whatnot, even though we got acquired in 07, we still look back and many of us have not had as wonderful of a work culture as what we had at Atlas. It was amazing. From there, uh, I went and did my MBA at Kellogg School of Management in Chicago. Um, and then, and that was tremendous where I really got to round out my skill sets in, uh, in areas that I wasn't so strong in, right? So accounting and the structure around marketing, the st structure around strategy. Porter's five forces and the C's and the P's were all very alien to me. Um, and then from there, spent a little bit of time in San Francisco. And then I saw the growth of the hockey stick of the New York technology ecosystem. So I moved to New York in 2011. And if you look only a couple of years before I moved here, really New York was only known for a few companies, DoubleClick and meetup.com being two of the standouts. And in 2011, things really were clearly starting to change drastically. And so the Flatiron neighborhood in particular was just full of startups. And some of these startups were winning major international competitions, were scaling on the enterprise and consumer level, were winning South by Southwest. And uh, now New York is truly exponentially bigger than it was when I first moved here. And so I was the head of product, head of engineering at a few startups in New York. 
Then in 2014, I was invited to join as one of the members of the founding team, not as a founder, but part of the founding team of a brand new venture capital firm called White Star Capital. And at White Star, we raised a fund in 2014. That was a $70 million fund. Uh, the fund's been known for investments in Dollar Shave Club, which was acquired for a billion dollars all cash by Unilever. It was an investor in Freshly, which a few weeks ago was announced. Uh, it was announced that it was acquired by Nestle for 950 million base plus 550 million of upside. And uh, the fund continues to have some really spectacular companies that will hopefully scale and be even bigger than Dollar Shave Club and Freshly. We raised Fund Two. And uh, there we continued adding more offices. And so the firm started with offices in New York, Montreal, and London. Then we added offices in Paris, in Tokyo, and in Hong Kong. And Fund 2's portfolio continues to scale really, really impressively. And uh, in fact, the last two investments from the fund were investments in companies in Seoul and Kuala Lumpur. Um, and so it gives you an idea of the global scale uh, that White Star was, uh, was pursuing and continues to pursue. And then approaching White Star Fund 3, I wanted to branch off. And so I've been involved in some uh, syndicate investing and independent board seats as I work towards building a new firm. Very cool. Well, it's pretty exciting the things that you've, you've done, where you've, gone, where you've gone to and kind of where you're going to now. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more was um, kind of your experience that you had working inside of a VC, because most of the conversations that we have, they're always structured around angel investing yeah. and angel investors and what they're doing. So uh, you come from a totally different side because you've got experience in all areas, big business, in uh, raising capital for VC funds. And now you've gone into the angel venture side. So it's a really nice transition. And again, it's very unique because we don't get that opportunity. Most people that uh, sell a company, they stay either building new companies. Very few do they go into being angel investors. They might do one investment and think, what a waste, I lost my money or I don't know how to do this. So then they walk away and they go back to building a new company. And then other people that run companies, they just tend to be angel investors. They don't change from that. They don't move through that cycle. So it's pretty cool that uh, you've done that. So I guess my, my first question, oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh my God, I was jumping ahead. I forgot to get that one thing about you that we didn't know. <laughs> can't, can't forget that. That's like key to everything we do here. We need to know that one nugget about you that no one knows. My, uh, so I'm a Kauffman Fellow, and that's an international org organization of venture capitalists. And the term that we use um, for the thing that nobody else knows about you is what is something off the balance sheet about you? Or what's okay. your off balance sheet item? Um, and I always try to mix it up so I'm not too repetitive about what's my off the balance sheet. Today, I'll share with you that I really enjoyed taking two years of classes for improv. And uh, it's humbling. It's creative. It's fun. You develop really a new style of communication. And when you fail, no problem. A little bit, a little bit like having a venture capital portfolio. Um, you regret the failure but you know that you can take another swing at bat and you just get back on stage and you 
improvise a new scene with a new character and hopefully it works really well. And one of the rushes of being on scene when, when an improvised scene is really working out well is that you can sense your control over the emotions of the audience. When they're leaning in, you, you feel it, you know it, you know exactly, you control when they laugh, you control when they cry and, uh, and it's not scripted. And so you have to be on the ball and thinking and, and planning. And I just loved my improv experience. And now I still go, well, prior to COVID, I, I would still go watch improv shows and I can see all the tools uh, that the improv actors are using. And uh, that's, it's a joy. Oh, that's phenomenal. And with the improv learning that you got, do you find that just the interactions that you have with anybody and everybody, you're trying to enlighten, be more funny, bring in more things that make it easier to interact quicker? Um, like, do you find you changed your habits so that you really do kind of try to embrace other people's um, maybe shortcomings and be able to get them to open and move quicker in a conversation? In most improv schools, the very, very first class is called Yes And. Various book authors have talked about it. Um, there are entire chapters dedicated to Yes And. And it's a very powerful tool for a few reasons. One key reason is, so the idea of Yes And is if, Jeffrey, if you and I are on scene together and you say something, the, the sky is blue then I need to start with the first two words, yes. And the sun is also spectacular yellow. To, in order to be able to do that, I need to one, be listening to what you said. That's key. I've been on many improv scenes where my colleague on stage was not really listening because they were only thinking about what they had to say. And so they didn't listen to what their stage mate said because they had something funny to say. That's not yes and. That's I'm going to be the star of the show and we're not partnering together. So a big part of just interpersonal communication as it is with improv is listening. And then building on the idea. And so to be additive to the discussion. And so the and part of yes and, right? So when I said yes and the, sky, the sun is a beautiful yellow, that is similar to being in a business setting or a fun uh, dinner with friends setting. And you don't need to use the words, words yes and. If you have the habit of it, you're generally going to be in agreement with people. You're generally making other people feel like you're listening to them and you're hearing them and you're building on the concepts. And whether it's building on a joke, building on a sensitive emotional moment, that really resonates. And of course, the words no and but are important whenever you really want to disagree with somebody. However, when you want to agree with someone, then the philosophy of yes and really works in social settings and business settings. And yes, I use the spirit of yes and, and sometimes even the words uh, in many, many settings. So you, so you just answered the kind of the, the next step that I would ask of that is that it's not about saying yes and, because in my head, I'm like, okay, say yes and. But what it really comes down to is how you've acknowledged that person's information and how you've layered into the next steps of that. 
So in this case, I would say wholeheartedly agree 100% with what you shared. And the onset of what comes out of that piece of information you shared was that when I acknowledge you and what you shared is that we'll bond faster together because I'm now accepting what you said. I've layered on some new information, which is that it's widely sought, taught, and um, uh, been papers written on this, is that when you can make somebody feel accepted by acknowledging their information and you add, layer onto it, that they'll actually feel more comfortable opening more up to you and wanting to share more. And your whole goal in this conversation is to get them to do that, which will put them out at ease. So then they'll continue to talk and share more information. Yeah. And it also really creates a lovely setting. Yeah. Oh, it makes imagine. it fun. It makes it nice. It makes it, uh, it makes it easy in a business setting to dig deep on something in a way where it's not adversarial. Yep. I have a, I had a few friends that have, uh, one was actually um, a young guy that worked for us. He went and took courses in this, but he was a funny guy. So he wanted to figure out how he could be funnier. Um, so it worked out quite well, but a lot of great learnings from it. And then uh, the same thing was another friend. She actually wanted to be able to figure out how to overcome her shortcomings in dealing with people and talking with people so that she would actually find wittier things and be able to find and, and bring humor to things that might not be funny but doing it in an easy way. And that's how she started and why she went into this um, concept of learning how to joke and be able to be improv, right? Do things like that. And she found that it was amazing. She went to be a lawyer. So she just needed to have a way to be able to grasp and work with people better. So I think there's a way for just like taking master classes and everything else. There's always a way to layer in and better improve your communication and the way you interact with people. If you take enough time to understand your shortcomings, and look at ways that you can improve on them by doing other things to put you out of your own comfort zone. Absolutely. And one key lesson that I remember from my improv teacher, uh, she really impressed upon the, the whole class that uh, even though most improv scenes and with humor and have humor along the way, that's not a set law. That there, there are no rules on improv. The people are going to, the audience is going to be entertained. And if this scene leads you once in a blue moon, not too often, to create a scene where the audience ends up crying and they feel pathos for the characters that you are improvising, that is okay also. That is beautiful also. Improvisation. Yeah, improvisation does not mean comedy. Improvisation means to improvise in any direction. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. I like that. And and again, like these things that you're learning along the way are helping you better work with people, help people feel more comfortable with you, which in the short and long term is going to benefit your relationships. But it also benefits the people that are working with you, especially if it's a startup or an investor to feel quicker or feel more comfortable quicker, faster so that you can kind of work down that uh, funnel, if you will, of where you're going with that person or that associate or whatever it might be so it really is and a fun little aside with this um in an environment where someone actually intentionally uses the words yes and sometimes you will see a couple people's eyes spruce up and see what's happening because they also took improv classes or read a book or yeah. some other way of being familiar with the with the practice and that's amazing because there's this little glimpse of the eye. Uh, I see what you're doing and I like it. And we're speaking the same language. 
Uh, I found that when I was uh, uh, on a couple of interviews a, a few years back, um, I realized that the same thing when I would post a question and then the way the person would shift the question back and the way that they would package it back up and ship it back to me, it's a very, um, psychologists use this as a way to get you to open up on the question and it's just the way they frame the question back after they may answer it. So I would look at this and I'd be like, wait a second, did you read a psychology book? Why turn this around? And it's, it's funny, as you learn little things, you start to pin where people have picked up little things like you said. So it's quite fun and clever, I guess. It is. I love it. If um, there's an old, well, not old, 20 year old book uh, called Crucial Conversations. Uh, I remember taking actually a two day training class on it because I so admired everything that was in the book. And it's, it's a little bit the opposite of improv, but with a, with a similar spirit, it's understanding how to manage a very challenging discussion, a crucial conversation when the stakes are high and when there's disagreement. And so there are some philosophies and, and the, the one that I most retained is if I solidly, solidly am disagreeing with somebody and I remind myself that that person is also a well-intentioned, smart, caring person. And even more so, what if our intentions are the same? So if it's a negotiation, we're on different sides of the table, then we're both looking to maximize. But what if we're in the same team with the same goal to increase shareholder value? And we just have different philosophies about how to get there. If you remind yourself that that person has the same goals, maybe even discuss it in some short form way, and you acknowledge that there's a disagreement, and you also acknowledge that the person is super smart, super well-intentioned, we're really on the same page, coming back to those philosophies are really powerful and allow you to yes and a situation in a way that can foster an environment to come to a nice decision together. I love it. My brain was running through these scenarios of things that happened throughout my career and it, you touched on one, one uh, situation that was very much like this is uh, when I worked in corporate, um, you know, 20 years ago, the, uh, it would come up uh, through my boss at the time and he would make comments about um, uh, you need to learn how to play the politics game. And I would be like, I don't have time for this, man. I'm a doer. I get stuff done. That's it. I'm whipping through. We're making this happen. And he said, you need to learn it. And he just pulled me aside one day and said, you need to learn this. So I decided, you know what? I can't learn to be something. I have to be the best at something. So I'm going to work this politics game to be the best at it. And I won't even know I'm doing it because I'm going to be so good at it because I've spent the last 20 years paying attention to everybody in their politics. I'll just turn it around on its head and make it better. So I had to figure out a way to get through things easier so that the outcome was always a positive outcome. So just like saying the yes and, but I would structure it a little bit differently. So if I knew that I was going through business analysis process and we were doing this as a team, and I knew that if I threw out data and numbers and factual information that was going to benefit you, but you were the owner of that brand, you would become quite frustrated because I would be obviously um, sharing something that you didn't know about your own business and you might not be happy about that. And I would undermine you. So, um, and I didn't realize this at the beginning that I was just doing this. I'd be like, well, this works better. And I'd show data and they'd be like, kind of give me those evil eyes. So 
shifted around. And what I would do is because I knew had this information or this drive, I would give it to them prior. And I would work with them to say, how do you envision this coming out so that I can support you on helping this build you forward better? And then they would be like, okay, well, I can understand where you're coming from. So I guess if we do it like this, so then in the meeting, instead of me just rifling out ways to help, I would bring it up so that they would look like they were the ones that rifled this together. And then we would be on the same page and then everybody else would get packaged together and supporting it because two of us were on the same wavelength and then they were able to drive it forward. So it ended up becoming quite um, uh, collaborative without anybody feeling that they were being uh, shoved out or not being uh, supported. So I guess in a way you find your own ways to yes and and support while you're working through those ecosystems to help build up the base. So um, to just to the effect that you were saying that there's a lot of different ways to work inside of that, but it's also p positive reinforcement on how you support team to get that to go forward, right? You hit the nail on the head. That whole best practice of if you want to have something get done, a great way to make it happen is to have someone else recommend it first. And then you yes and them. Yeah, brilliant. See, man, this is great. This took us in a totally different direction. What super fast, super quick learning, which I love. Um, but now we're going to go back to the original question, which was, I, I want to also dive into, like, we built up this great way of communicating and, and teams. And, and this probably is going to go two ways. I'm going to go into the VC side. But because of the topic we just talked about, I want to also ask you, because you mentioned it a few times, uh, which was all around... Um, culture and how you define that you had this amazing culture in this first team. And I want to explore this because when we were talking, when you were talking about that, when I worked my first jobs, I did lots of different things in startups and whatever else. But the job that always had the biggest attention to me was when I worked at the largest retailer, which was Loblaws, my real corporate job. And for some reason I connected with everybody that I worked with tightly and closely with, but I really enjoyed that. And if someone ever said, hey, would you go back and work for this company or any of the other things I've done, I probably would go back to this just because of, and maybe it only lasts a day, but it just had so much uh, impact on my growth of a person that it made such a difference. And it was the culture, um, even if it was a small, large team, however. So I want to explore how you felt that this made an impact and how do you carry that culture that you created or that you were part of? into all of the other things that you've been doing? Because I think it's important that maybe we don't realize how much of a uh, culture makes a difference in growing a business. At Atlas, we had something so special going on and to really put an exclamation mark on it, keep in mind, we were in Seattle at a time when both Microsoft and Amazon were scaling like crazy. They could not hire enough great people. And there were many other companies in Seattle too, Getty Images and uh, Zillow, Redfin, all, all kinds of great companies. Despite that, the engineering team at Atlas had almost zero undesired uh, people leaving the company. And we were paying slightly lower salary than what Microsoft and Amazon were offering. The reason people were saying was really about the culture and the joy of working together. And the fact that it doesn't hurt that we're, we knew we were succeeding. 
we, we could see the public market stock going up and that it wasn't just going, it, the stock wasn't just increasing because the market was increasing. We were growing fast. And so that was a part of it. And then another part was we didn't do many things halfway. And I'll use an example. So in a 2004 timeframe, Agile was barely known in the software development world. Some people knew and some people had been doing it for a few years, but not many. And when the management at Atlas decided to take on Agile software development, we didn't simply have a few people read a few books and wing it. Instead, we brought in the godfathers of Agile, the people whose names are attributed to the Agile manifesto, the people who wrote the initial books on Agile. And we didn't just simply send our people to the, to the conferences or the events where those speakers would be speaking. We paid to have those people come into our office. And then instead of doing a big training in front of the whole company, instead those trainers would come in the, the, the I use the word trainer. They're also the most prestigious book authors and people who define the Agile Manifesto would come in and spend time with each small team one by one. And some of them spent one week per team. And then some we would invite back to come back to the office six months later to reevaluate us, to give us feedback on how we had or how we had failed to implement the strategies that they had recommended for us. Amazing. Right? That's, that's real conviction, real budget, real heart and attention being put on the fact that we want to deliver software in a way different than the rest of the world was doing. And we want to do it in a way that we would succeed or that would maximize our likelihood of success. Oh, that's crazy. So so there's a lot of, um, it sounds like there's a lot of work-driven effort to keep everybody educated, driven, but the culture was driven because of where they could see the business going. So the culture was actually, sounds like it's really been, it's really derived around everybody's success as a whole, every success as an individual, and then being able to um, monitor this success through the markets or through wherever else you were seeing those growth and those changes occur. So you weren't looking at the things falling down, you were looking at the things going forward. Where are we going to get to here? So you're in this fast pace and around you was also a fast pace environment because Amazon and Microsoft were growing really quickly. So you were kind of almost in a horse race, not knowing it, but feeling like you were one and everybody just collectively felt that you were part of that same race. Very, very much so. An example is on the HR front. We all know when, when we are working at a big company that indirectly our colleagues are our competitors. We might be stack ranked against them for yearly valuations, or some people are chosen for promotion, some people are not. Bonuses are divided up. So we all know that our colleagues are slightly competitive to us. At Atlas, that was de-emphasized as much as reasonably possible. And so team success and company success was really embedded into the culture of what we were all focused on. And if we sensed some 
superstar behavior of people who just wanted to do their own job and, and not be helpful to others. Those were the types of people that one, we tried to filter out of the company and two, in our interview loops, that was a key criteria that we would always try to dig into because we wanted people to work together. And for us, we believe that our competition was the competing companies, DoubleClick primarily. And so DoubleClick was our competitor, not our colleague that we sat beside in an office or a cube or an open agile space, right? DoubleClick was a competitor. That's so key. When I know that I can trust my colleagues and that we're working together towards the same goal, it feels a little bit like a, a sports team, right? Your competition should not be your teammates. It should be the competing team. And, and to that point, uh, where, where I like where you went with this is that because you define it as a sports team, you know that you're always going out against the challenge. There's um, in front of you, there's a team that you have to beat in order to get that point that gets you further along. I think in business, we sometimes tend to forget that we're competing. So, and I don't mean individually against the person beside you. I mean, as a corporate. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you can have an issue with who you're going after as your competitor. So when we work with startups and the startup says, my competitor is Salesforce. And we're like, Salesforce is not your competitor. Salesforce is the godfather of the business. Your competitor is this company down here. Maybe components of Slack, but they're too big. But you're down here competing with the small and mid-tier. You need to find people that you're literally trying to steal a land grab from so that you can work your way up to being a competitor to the sales force. Maybe in the foresight uh, they might be, but really you got to work down at this layer first and, and work your way through it. But have a competitor. Yeah. And the thing is, is that when you don't have a competitor, you can't have a strategic drive. You can't get everybody to go after a goal. And that goal has to be formulated around something that creates energy and usually it's about winning a war. And if you don't have a war to win, you kind of can't really move forward fast enough. You're, you're kind of become displacent uh, or complacent. So <laughs> it is, you know, and I have no problem if a startup says that the, let's, let's imagine we take a time machine and uh, it's 2013 or so. And we meet a startup who says that their competition are these large companies called Skype and WebEx. Okay, right? That, that's fine. As long as they're not naming a massive company that doesn't have a specific product within it. A, a startup could come to me right now and pitch an idea of creating a better, uh, better software for creating presentation decks. And they can say Microsoft PowerPoint is one of my competitors. Okay, good. But don't say Microsoft is my competitor to your point. Microsoft PowerPoint, it's the users of that product and Google presentations, users of those two products that I am trying to capture. Okay, good. But it's not Microsoft and Google. Correct. It's the specific products. Correct. Yep. And and it makes a difference. And I think uh, just along the lines of getting your team into a culture or getting them all driven is that when you provide, people believe in the founder, they believe in the CEO, they believe in where they're going, so they have a direction. So I think it's really important that your teams understand that in order to build a culture, you have to have a drive and you have to have somewhere to go. And that's, what am I accomplishing this year? And you know, you're getting into that crawl, walk, run scenario, but if we all know the common goal of where we're trying to go to, then we all know the type of work we need to put into to get there. 
And if I can do that with my team and we're all supporting each other, then it's going to be something we can get there faster. And then what's the end goal when we do get there? What's the payout? What's the win? Uh, is it camaraderie? Is it a life experience? Or in the case of Atlas, you guys left with this um, real team bonding that when you guys meet up, it's like you didn't actually stop hanging out and working with them. It's just this quick, remember we did this? God, that was cool. And you just move right in through like you were hanging out with them yesterday and it could have been 10 years ago. But it, it built that strategy because you were all in the same sinking ship. You were all on the same uh, high-speed locomotive when you were running at full tilt. So you felt part of something. Very much so. And you may have heard many investors say, I don't want to hear a company uh, speaking too much about their competition. I want the companies that I invest in to be focused on building their own companies. That is 100% true. It doesn't preclude at least a little bit of awareness of what the competition's doing. And let's say it's a B2B company and they're, they, they will be doing bake-offs. To know what the competition might say about you or the competition sales force team, sales team, what they might say about your company. Um, and that's critical too. Build your own company. Don't worry about the competition, but at least have a little bit of intelligence on them. Just make it sufficient because that can inform all your decisions. Agreed. Yeah, and I think also if you tie in with that understanding, to me, I want the, the CEO or the founding team to be almost psychotic about the market. Because when you're fully in that market and some of the stuff that I've read and the articles that you've posted and the videos you're in, uh, a lot of things you talk about is, is obviously around um, understanding the market, being really entrenched in it and figuring out where you gotta go. And I guess that all comes down to strategy, but the team has a, a good sense of where they fit in and how they can pivot, how they can change, how they can be dynamic, how they can move. And I think if you're being a psychotic founder and you understand what your landscape looks like, then you can fit in better. You can actually figure out where I'm going to change next to because you know what's going to happen next. You can almost see it coming. And if I can't see it coming, I don't know enough about my environment. I better learn more. So does that kind of fit into that whole structure inside of mentality of how you and your business have to fit in order to build forward? When I'm evaluating investment opportunities, I need to see a company that will, one, really understand their customers. And whether it's an enterprise, because you, know, you mentioned Salesforce earlier, or whether it's a next WhatsApp, to have an incessant passion for making your users and your customers successful. And you need to be dogmatic. Now, you, maybe you do an 80-20 rule on that. That's fine. But for whatever subset of the people that you care about or the customers that you care about, you make them so incredibly successful that if you were to quiz them, how would you feel about this product no longer existing tomorrow? And they respond, oh, I can't imagine that. I can't. That's, that's unacceptable. That's the response you want. And I'm, here I'm quoting... Uh, a few different other VCs who've made similar comments, uh, but it really is uh, nail nailing it perfectly. That's what you want from a company and from the cus from the company's users to say. Yep, I uh, I like that. I do agree. Uh, so now take all these great little things that we've talked about that kind of shape your team, shape your culture, shape your business, 
And the reason I think we really dove into these pieces and of course um, how to communicate is you come in it from a VC perspective and now you're coming in it from an angel perspective. So to dive a little bit more into the VC side, maybe give us a little of an explanation of what does the VC term mean for one? Because I think a lot of people really don't understand what the word VC means or what venture capitalist is all about. So maybe give us a little bit of an understanding from your perspective and where you sat in what that looks like, and then kind of the needs and wants of what a VC looks for. A venture capitalist, for the most part, let's call it netty 9% of the time, is someone who first and foremost has to raise capital the way an entrepreneur raises capital, because most venture capitalists are not investing their own money. Or if they are, it's only a small part of the total percentage of the capital that they are actually investing. A lot, that's a point that's lost on many entrepreneurs. I remember a few years ago, um, I had finished pitching a prospective investor into my fund at the time. And that prospective investor, we call it a limited partner, the prospective LP, the prospective limited partner, had said that they were not going to be investing in my next fund. My very next meeting was with an entrepreneur who opens up to me in the first two minutes and says, Lylan, I'm failing at raising my round. You have no idea what this is like. You have no idea how hard fundraising is. Well, I had just gotten rejected possibly 180 seconds earlier. Um, and so there is, to, to use a beautiful analogy, a waterfall of capital. The employees get it from the employer, who's a startup. The startup gets it from the VC. The VC gets it from the limited partners. The limited partners, well, there are different types. Some of them might get it from the school that they represent or their pension fund that they represent, or from a new type, a larger type of limited partner that doesn't invest in smaller funds, but invests in a fund to invest in other funds. And so there's this massive waterfall and uh, venture capitalists are effectively in the middle of it all. We're not at the top of, of the waterfall. Um, to continue answering your question, a lot of the deal flow that a seed series A, even series B venture capitalist will look at, a lot of that deal flow comes from introductions from our favorite angels where we develop trust. Because if you consider the angel investor to be the first write a check writer into a company. Well, how does the next round of financiers learn about those companies? There are many ways. And one of those ways is by really warm intros by the angels. And so it's important for the angels and for the VCs to have a very trusted relationship. And I'll use an example behind this. If I see a pattern of an angel sending me deals. And then I see that they ha have had other great companies that other firms have raised in, but I was never introduced to. Then that will make me feel like I'm not getting that angel's best set of companies. So why should I really invest in them? If there is a trusted relationship, the angel will be giving me a heads up that a certain company might be raising six months from now. And I should start fostering a relationship with that CEO now. Similarly, it needs to be a give and take type of world where we all need to support each other and get karma points with each other. 
And so it's important that if I see companies that are too early stage for me, but that really piqued my interest, that I share them with, with the angel investors that I want to have that trusted relationship with also. Oh, that's a, a really good way of sharing what a VC does, but it's also a, a great little roadmap on how angels and VCs collaborate and work together. And what I like about what you shared is that I believe this is kind of like your US model. Um, I find that the Canadian model really does need to um, open up more to this because there's a little bit of, I will say, tension between what angels bring to the table and what early VCs do. And a lot of the time, the early VCs have a tough time working with the angels because they find that uh, they maybe are wasting time or not investing quick enough. What the difference is, is that angels are investing their dollars to support and their time to support these companies to get them to a stage where a VC can now come in at seed or uh, a series A to really dive in and, and make a difference. So I think there is a bit of room of growth that can occur there, but you're, you're bang on that it should be a handoff because like anything, you've got a funnel and the funnel has to start with different mechanisms that work along when you're going to raise money. What's the time period that you usually do. Those are pretty standard times, right? Like angel VCs raise up to 10 million as a valuation. They don't tend to keep raising after that. Um, VCs usually step in around uh, 8 million to 15 million. I call it the dead zone where Nobody really wants to invest because they're not really sure that the company's going to go anywhere. Yeah, they got some investment. Yeah, they've got some, some revenues, but they're still in that sticky spot. So that's where a VC starts to vet in and learn, and the angels are still trying to support it. But you don't want to be in that area when you're valuation. And then anything after, I'd say about $12 million to onwards, you've got Series A, B, C, and all the way up. And those are all hand, handed off to a VC or someone that you've built the relationships with. And I think that if you follow kind of those standard practices, you'll find that your company will raise funds at the right time and move quicker. And when you try to go outside them, it just creates this crazy chaos of people not knowing how to manage it or who should I go after and were they represented properly? And uh, the ecosystem just gets a little bit uh, discombobulated. So um, I like that you were able to break that out and really sort through where an angel helps a VC and that VCs are willing if they have a relationship to take that deal flow and do something great with it. Two points on that. Point number one, um, pretty much every day I hear from an entrepreneur, hey, Lylan, I have all the capital that I need for my next round secured, except that I need a lead. And I'd heard that so many times that I ended up publishing an article on how to find a lead for your next round of financing. And with a very New York pride mentality, I published what I tried to make as the authoritative list on who are each of the firms with a New York office that lead rounds at each stage, pre-seed, seed, A, B, C, and D. With the intent there being that an entrepreneur who had raised an angel round and wants to go raise from pre-seed and seed investors, they really shouldn't be reaching out to the VCs who lead series B and series C. That's a mismatch. It's great to foster relationships when the timing is right. But when you're in the heart of raising your pre-seed round, you might want to focus on the right type uh, of investors. And that's often overlooked. And that type of chart, I think would really benefit the Canadian ecosystem. And it, 
maybe it's not even can maybe it's not even a Canada as a whole. Maybe it's simply the Toronto Waterloo corridor. Right. Or you could even put in Montreal in there, but I think Vancouver is enough of a different ecosystem or the West coast and maybe even the Atlantic's a different ecosystem also, but for some people to create a similar chart that has Georgian on the later stage that has golden on the earlier stages that has Inovia and white star in the middle as real, right? And as right, we can go on and on, you can almost visualize what the table would look like. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not aware of that table having been made out yet for, for the Canadian or, or Toronto Waterloo ecosystem. And I think it would be very, very helpful. Um, the second point I was going to raise that the second point I should bring up on this is the, the fact that when you were talking about the difference between the speed of investment, an angel for the most part, makes investments from their own budget, from their own capital allocation strategy, and they answer to nobody other than themselves and their families. A VC firm, and let's, let's, say a, let's say a $100 million VC firm, $100 million, that sounds like a lot of money. That $100 million, the LPs have, the, the, the VC firm has already committed to their investors, to the LPs, that there's gonna be a certain strategy. They'll invest in, a certain number of companies at a certain range of valuation and for a certain percentage ownership. And I'm going to overly simplify this example. I will ignore management fees, which is how the VCs actually pay themselves and pay for a lot of their fees and their lawyers and their rent and so on. And just use some very, very simple numbers, hundred million dollar fund. Let's say that the VC firm says that on average, uh, they will invest $5 million into each company that they invest in. And let's say that they communicate that they want to put half the fund aside for reserves. So they want to put half the fund aside to continue investing into their best companies, which is in the best interest of the startup because a startup needs to tell future investors, yes, my prior investor is still investing in the, in the next round. So if it's $5 million first check, $5 million of reserves, that's 10 million per company. That means the VC firm only get, is only going to invest in 10 companies in the fund. So what sounds at first like a large $100 million fund actually ends up being only 10 investments. And you and I know that math is actually can be a lot more refined uh, and, and result in even a smaller number of investments. Um, Probably work around maybe nine. Right. And <laughs> with that's all the payouts it. and everything else, you're probably sitting around nine. Yeah. And that is going to be over typically a three-year period. So that means that VC firm only gets to make three or so new investments per year. But to, to many entrepreneurs, a hundred million dollar fund should be, if they believe in what I'm doing, they should be able to invest. And that's what I used to think before I became VC. So the reason I share this is to relate because I remember what my perception was uh, of how big a hundred million dollars fund sounded, or even 300, 400 million still. Um, when you divide up the number of investments, the reserves, the fact that it's probably gonna be over three year investment period, it doesn't allow the firm to make that many investments. For sure. No, and that's, that's great sharing. And the other side of that then is what are, and maybe you can define it, when should an early stage company, pre-seed, seed, 
when should they start engaging with a VC if they're looking to do a Series A? Should they start really early on and just sharing kind of where they're at? Because a lot of time gets burned doing deep dives and them thinking that they're going to get this VC to invest in them when 90% of the time it probably won't happen because they're too early. Is there a couple of points that you have on criteria that says, hey, you know what, if you're going to talk to an early stage VC, do it when you've got at least 500,000 of ARR uh, or you've got this many users or you've got this much current investment already and then come talk to us. Is there some structure that you look at that really defines that process to help early stage companies kind of say, you know what, put them in the rear view until you get to here? I wish the list that I built out for the New York VCs could be expanded to add additional detail. I just don't have the time to do it myself because there are many firms out there who invest pre-revenue. There are firms out there that invest pre-product, right? Um, it takes time and effort to, for an entrepreneur to learn who those firms are. There are some firms that have a rule. They don't invest in any company unless there's 100K MRR. Great. That's rarely on their website. Yep. Very, very rarely. Once in a blue moon. And so it's challenging for an entrepreneur. There are no universal rules other than the fact that every firm is kind of different from one to the next. And so to not get too frustrated, uh, you might have five discussions in a row with firms who say that they look for at least 100K MRR and you're not there yet. And, but you're at 30K MRR. So, you know, you are uh, generating revenue. You do have traction, but you're not at that target yet. And it's easy to, to lose hope and say, well, gosh, no one's going to invest in my company because I'm not, not at that point yet. The reality is there are firms out there at your stage. You just need to get the right, uh, the, do the right research to find out who those firms are or um, speak with other entrepreneurs who have raised rounds that, that we're at that timing. I guarantee you that exists. And one of the things I love about the way good startup ecosystems like Toronto, like Waterloo, like Montreal, like New York, like Boston, and some other cities are starting to evolve. I think Miami is going to really grow quickly now as a result of people moving to the city is the fact that there are CEO support groups. Uh, I don't know what term they actually use. They always use different terms from one to the next, but having 10 different CEOs in a room where they can meet regularly mm. and where they share advice and feedback. And maybe there's an entrepreneur that says, Hey, I'm, I've been told over and over again, that I am not getting hundred K MRR. And, and so they don't want to invest in my company. And there might be three entrepreneurs in that room who say, oh, you're just speaking with the wrong firms. You should speak with the investor who invested in me when I was only having 10K of MR. So you're at 30 and, and my old investor will be so impressed by what you're building. It creates accountability too, right? It does. Um, being a CEO is often a very lonely job. Uh, not that it's solitary because you're often surrounded by many people. You're surrounded by your direct reports, uh, by your co-founders, by your investors, but you really have a limited number of people that you can show vulnerability to. And so those CEO support groups are a great place for that, where a CEO can show that vulnerability that, gosh, it feels like no one wants to invest in my company, 
or I'm having a situation where I need to figure out a compensation plan or terminate someone's employment or promote someone over someone else and need advice on how, whatever. There are many, many scenarios where CEO to CEO advice in a non-coaching environment can be very valuable. And for what it's worth, it's also helpful for us investors because there are not many people that we can show that level of openness to. And so to have a few other investors who can relate, but that won't judge us when we show the, when we show vulnerability, that's also very valuable for us as it is for startup CEOs. I love it. To be honest, we could probably break this out into like six episodes and we just, you and I'll just keep talking until we've just solved everything that's going on in the VC angel world. But I'm being honest, we so could. Um, because you, you just touched on another piece that uh, we're going to jump into, even though it's off topic again, but because I'm like, oh my God, I haven't heard this from any interview. So I want to jump on it. So, uh, and, and you, you, you nailed it on the head just for the whole conversation we just had, but vulnerability. So there's founders groups, there's lots of groups that are out there trying to help CEOs elevate their game, be accountable to each other in those groups, like you mentioned, which I think are fantastic. There's CEO Global, there's lots of different ones that work at all different stages, just like investors come at different stages. But there's one thing that uh, I find that, uh, and I had someone call me and uh, I remember I was boarding a plane to uh, the Middle East back in October, uh, sorry, in uh, December last year. And we ended up having a call for like an hour before I got on the plane and it was all about this, hey, I wanna talk to CEOs and I wanna get in there and help them better build their company. How do I do it? Because every time I'm talking to them, they don't really give me their focus. They don't give me the time of day and I know I can help them. So how do I really break into this? And he's like, how do you do it? And I said, well, there's a difference. We come in from a money perspective. So they have more time to focus on you. But at the same time, we, we solve the problem, which is we come in from this vertical. So there's a reason to come into you. But now it's how do I interact with them to get them to engage with me and open up so that I can understand more of what's going on inside their business so that I can see if there's an opportunity to invest, but also support them and make some figure out if there's vulnerabilities on both sides and how do you appeal to them so they want to continue talking to them. Because I'm not coming in to sell, I'm coming in to support. And when you come in to support, you get a little bit more value out because eventually it will lead to a sale longer term. Uh, which would be an investment or whatnot, because you're there to listen, you're there to understand, and you're making time because you're providing them with value and a service of value that they want. And that could be either funding, knowledge, exchange of information, whatever it might be. But that builds that relationship of trust, which then allows them to open up and be more vulnerable. And then you can decide as you get more information where you want to go. So from a VC side, how, did you, how do you work inside that company when it comes to vulnerability because that really makes a big impact on a decision that you're going to make if you're investing $5 million into that company. How do you, at that stage, build that relationship so that they're going to open up kind of what's going on inside the company? I just thought of 20 different answers to your question that are all uh, powerful. Um, I, as an investor, say what many other investors, but not all, tell a CEO uh, upon investment which is I want to be your first call when something goes bad in the company. doesn't matter if it's three in the morning. I've already programmed your phone number to bypass my do not disturb sleep mode. 
if there's something that needs my attention and some way that I can support you because ultimately the investor works for the CEO other than having the power of replacing the CEO. And that's a big caveat granted, but other than that one big caveat, we work for the CEO. We are there to empower the CEO to be the most successful. And so if they're facing a challenging situation, I want to be helpful to them. I also want to hear the good news when good news happens. But if the CEO forgets to share with me the good news for, for 24 hours, that's not as bad as the CEO not calling me when there's bad news. And so there's that vulnerability uh, aspect that comes in where this, the CEO, and this has happened countless times, where the CEO would call me or message me saying, do you have a sec? Right? Not, let's catch up tomorrow. Do you have a, and, and those are words you, you never want to see in a way, because do you have a second is rarely a good thing that's going to be shared, but that's okay. That's what we're here for. So that's one concrete aspect. A second thought of mine that came up as you're asking the question is there is a, a friend of mine in the New York VC ecosystem. He uh, was a longtime venture capitalist at several different firms locally. Then he really got into leadership coaching and CEO coaching. And then he joined a new VC firm and he wanted his identity as an investor to be that he would take on the dual role of investor and CEO coach. What could be better? He learned that actually a lot of CEOs do not want to show that much vulnerability to their investor mm -hmm. because you don't want to lose the, the, the belief from that investor because you want that investor to be leading your next round. And you don't want that investor to be replacing you unless you want to be replaced. And so my friend had to step back and really look in the mirror and decide I can do both, but it's very challenging to do both with the same company. And so which one do I want to make my primary passion and goal in life? Uh, because there's a limit to how much vulnerability a CEO is willing to show to their direct investor. One other aspect, which I find quite compelling is that some CEOs end up showing a lot more vulnerability to their investors who are not on their board, which when I am the board member, uh, I want to be that person, but also there's a, there's a good reason, there are good reasons. There's good logic behind why a CEO might show more, more vulnerability to a non-board member investor. One key one is that it's a board member that's responsible for the compensation and the potential replacement of that CEO. Whereas a non-board member might have a, a, a vote, but it's not that significant of a vote. And so there's an extra degree of separation. So that's one key reason. And Another key reason is sometimes that non-board member might have been an earlier investor where there where there's been rapport and trust for a greater number of years. Mm. There are many other reasons too. I'm just giving you two out of, out of brevity. Um, that's always an interesting dynamic where it's not always the lead investor or the board member that gets exposed to the most vulnerability by the CEO. No, I like that. And, and you, the way you you kind of talk about how that investor is interacting with the CEO, that their mandate is that they got to support them. They're going to help them. But when they're the lead, 
That CEO also knows that I need a perfect game. I need these people to keep believing in me the whole time. And it might be tough to show a weakness, tough to show a fault when you're moving a ship forward fast. And it's probably easier to get support from a, uh, maybe a, a, an LP versus somebody that's on your board. Get their perspective so that you go in more guns blazing so they continue to keep that shell or that hard uh, CEO look and feel so that the, the main board members continue to support you and think the great things. But in, in retrospect, we probably should be looking at it that if you want them to really be dug into who you are and what your business is about, you really need to open up more of that and not go to your LPs and share and get the right feedback so that you can drive forward and keep impressing your board and keep impressing people is that you need to let them help solve the problems because that's why they're on the board. Open it up, let it out and let them all kind of collaborate and figure out ways to solve it because that's, what's actually going to build you a stronger board, stronger presence and help you as um, a CEO grow and not get removed. And then two, when you do sell that company, those are the people that are going to come invest in you the next business you build. Yes. And to build on the perfect game, and I won't talk too much baseball because not all of your listeners are sports fans and baseball fans. The best pitcher throwing a perfect game will still throw balls. Not every pitch will be a strike, right? And they will give up hits and doubles. Well, not for a perfect game, but they'll still throw balls, right? And for a no-hitter, they still might walk a few batters. Right? And so there's a similar analogy there, which is if a CEO always seems like everything is perfect, that's scary to me. And that's scary to most investors. If things seem just too polished, humming along too perfectly, that, that, that just it's too good to be true. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the company that I was at that got acquired for, for $6 billion by Microsoft. One of the things I said about that is that while we clearly had a lot of successes, we made some mistakes along the way and we learned from those mistakes. We want to see that as investors. We want to know what mistakes the company is making and what the changes are uh, and what the little pivots are and changes in mentality and changes in culture. Um, that's really, really valuable to see that there's humanness involved in the company because other, we know that the humans leading the company cannot be robots. They are human and humans will falter. And it's how you adjust to those mistakes and those faults that really matter the most. No, I agree. I like that. Well, only because of time, I would love to keep this conversation. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to set up the very first part two, part deux, and we're going to move that to uh, the new year but we're going to arrange that because there's so much more I want to keep talking with you about. Um, and I, I'm just uh, a fan of, again, the background and knowledge that you carry around the VC and the angel side, and there's still the angel side to explore. So we're going to take that one aside. Um, but I, I think we've made a really good journey through uh, the learning and pulling in the vulnerabilities, the communication, so much great stuff, but we do got to jump into the rapid fire questions. So we're going to jump into those. Um, we'll end things up over uh, just around that, uh, and then we're going to book that new time. So hopefully you're okay with that. Let's do it. All right. I love it. Okay. So rapid fire questions. How many companies do you invest in per year? It has changed lately. Uh, lately I've been more than ever. So let's say five to 10 now. Perfect. 
Uh, what's your favorite part of investing? The relationship with the CEO. Okay. Any verticals you like to focus on? I geek out on all things data and application of data. I like it. I like data. Uh, do you have any due diligence requirements that you like to do and make uh, dive into first? It is absolutely situational based on what the company does, based on the company leadership, uh, based on everything that they do from B2B to B2C, uh, what type of KPIs they have. Are they pre-traction, post-traction? There isn't a universal rule. And if there was, I'd be sad about it. Okay. Timelines for investment? Depends on the stage of investment. If it's a pre-seed deal, then we can make our decisions pretty darn quickly, uh, maybe a week or so. If we're talking about a $10 million check or you know, even larger, then it requires more diligence. It requires more analysis. One thing, I know this is not a rapid fire answer, but I think it is timely and topical. Um, prior to COVID, entrepreneurs could only take on three or four meetings a day with VCs because they have to drive from one office to the next or take the subway or commute in some way. Things have changed now because so many of the pitches are done over Zoom. An entrepreneur can now meet eight or nine VCs in a day. As a result, it creates a much more competitive environment where in the past where a VC would need to say to the entrepreneur, I really like what you're building. Let me discuss it at our Monday partnership meeting. Now, many VCs, we need to make our decisions same day or next day, and we need to be more agile in our decision-making process. And we can't wait till that next Monday if we believe that your company could get five term sheets from other peer firms. That's a very good and valid point. I like it. Uh, is there anything that you look for outside the CEO that's really important in your deep dive? Paperwork, anything that really just sets the stage. You got to have this in order for us to move forward. Yeah, so we have big checklists, but one example is the strength of the entire leadership team combined with the awareness of the holes within the leadership team. At the early stage, you can't have the perfect well-rounded leadership team, but at least you can say, Here's what we're, we're, here is what we are doing well, and here are the areas where we know we need to staff up at the senior level once we have the appropriate funds. And they acknowledge those holes. Okay. Uh, do you lead rounds? Yes. Uh, take board seats. Yes. Percentage of follow-up investments. The dream is a hundred because the companies justify it. Okay. Uh, preferred terms like pref shares, common shares. Most deals over the last decade or so have been preferred one X lick. And okay. that's very, very normal, but I've seen everything from, I've seen Forex participating preferred. That's pretty aggressive, um, but the situation called for it. Um, and I've seen situations where even getting uh, 1x liquidation was a challenge because uh, the round was so competitive. Interesting and fascinating. Uh, any company that you want to showcase uh, that you feel is really cool and exciting right now? One company where I recently led an investment, Hava Health. Their product is 
you could call it an e-cigarette or a vaporizer that is controlled by software to help people wean off of their addictions. And first and foremost, addiction to nicotine. And the best comparison I can use on the importance of this product is my mom at 73 years old, recently stopped smoking. And she was smoking three packs a day since she was 15 years old. Now, that's wonderful, right? Now, my mom used the patch to stop smoking. It helped wean her off of the nicotine. My parents have been married for 49 years. Every single day, my dad does something that annoys my mom. And my mom, every single day, wanted to reach for a, for a cigarette because of the oral fixation. And so Have a Health addresses this. It gives the decreasing nicotine over time while also giving the person this, the oral fixation satisfaction. Even if you consider the person who stops smoking except for the social environment, you know, when they're out for having beers. Well, here again, that device can be smoked in that social environment instead of having to take in nicotine and potentially regain an addiction. Awesome. Yeah. So massive market, sensational CEO. Uh, the hardware, I, I've tried it. It's fantastic. Um, the app works great. All the right ingredients are there to build a multi-billion dollar business. And there are still many, many risks that the company must uh, overcome. Uh, but it has all the right ingredients. And that's why I chose to lead an investment in, in the company. Brilliant. I love it. Okay, one last question, then we're gonna go personal for a second. So the last question we have is, uh, we look for heartfelt stories. You've been working in venture capital for over 10 years, give or take everything that you've been doing. And you've come across lots of different founders from, that have gone through struggles or gone through wins or whatever to get to where they are. And I love a good story that kind of says, you know, this, this startup, she went through this to get to here and we thought she was going to fail and she just rocked it out. And now she's this big company or whatever it might be, but just looking for one of those heartfelt stories that really shows um, what entrepreneurs go through. It can be happy or sad. We've had, I've had some crazy stories. I'm not going to lie, like um, blow your mind away kind of stories, but you can listen to all the podcasts and, get those ones, but we need a meaty story here. Something good. I will not name the company. Yep. That's cool. I was diving deep to invest into a company that had two marquee customers and very little else in terms of revenue. As I'm, digging in deeper and deeper into the company. I learn on my own without the company's CEO telling me that one of those two marquee customers had a change in senior leadership. And for me as an investor, that meant that the relationship between that marquee customer and the startup could legitimately be at risk. That was painful. That was painful to see um, because one, I wish the CEO of the startup would have alerted me first. And second, um, 
what if this situation that already sounds bad gets worse and the company legitimately loses 50% of its marquee customers? One out of two. That's a challenging, challenging situation. And there was doubt because it wasn't guaranteed that they were going to lose this customer. They might actually be in a situation to impress the new management and increase their revenue from this new management team. We had no way of knowing. We had no way of guaranteeing that. And it's different when a company has 20 customers and one customer is at risk. When there are only two marquee customers, it's a different challenge. And um, that was a very challenging situation that I still remember like it was yesterday. And what was the what was the outlook? What did what came about? What did you guys end up doing? What did they end up doing? And did it work itself out? The company um, ended up deciding that hmm, how to answer this. This is one you're going to need to edit, my friend. Um, <laughs> The company is still alive and well. And oh. after a few hiccups, they've actually raised some capital from some prestigious investors and they are now growing. Perfect. That's like the best story ever. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. And it brings me joy because I built a, a very nice relationship with the CEO as an investor and a CEO do. And now that I see that the CEO's company is growing and scaling and raising capital and most likely bringing on more and more customers, I want to see the CEO succeed and be a multi-billion dollar company. Well, it puts things into question and perspective. And, and when you dive in, you start to question things. It may pull you away from it. And you know, at the end of the day, they were able to persevere. And I think that that's the key is that they found out what the problems were and hopefully they tackled them head on and then they were able to get around that. And sometimes they probably had to go down before they went back up again. And that's just part of uh, the way the markets work in the business, right? Absolutely. Uh, and if it was a smooth ride, then everybody would be doing it. Feels like everybody is doing it, but you're right. It's not a smooth ride. It's never easy. It's a bumpy ride. And you're going to sink more times than you swim. So you just have to figure out how to get your uh, water wings in there and, and just keep going. So. Um, all right, we're going to switch it just over to the personal side real quick. Um, so, favorite sports team? Montreal Canadiens. All right, it's better than the Toronto Beliefs, so we're good with that. And I'll go along with other sports, Toronto Raptors, Seattle Seahawks, Toronto Blue Jays. I like that you're a Blue Jay fan. That's good. That's good. All right, uh, favorite movie and what character would you play in that movie? Favorite English language movie is Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. Can you guess what character I'd want to play? Uh, I'm going to have to make a confession. No. I have definitely. not actually watched Kill Bill because I couldn't get myself to get into the mode of watching it way back when it came out. And now that you brought it up, my brain's like, I need to watch Kill Bill. So now I'm going to watch Kill Bill, but I haven't actually seen it. Yep. So 
it's not often that a man says that that he would want to play the the role of a woman. Yep. But Black Mamba. Black Mamba. All right. Um, and then in French, I have several, um, but I'll go with L'Auberge Espagnole. The English name of the movie is The Spanish Apartment. And uh, I forget the exact character's name, but it, it's the lead character. Um, and the experiences that he goes through in life, learning his own identity, who he is within his friendship group, uh, and how to treat other people well um, was truly, truly beautiful. Um, and for people who are not familiar with the movie and think, oh, just some random French language movie, uh, Audrey Tattoo is in the movie. And Audrey Tattoo, you've seen her in Amélie uh, and uh, many, many other legendary movies that have been very successful in America. And how do you say the name again? L'Auberge Espagnole. Espagnole. I'm going to look Spanish it up. Spanish Apartment. I will say that since I started asking these more personal questions, I have a lot of movies to watch, but uh, I do find that it, uh, what I love about it is that when I find out who the character is, it really does define the person. And it's quite amazing that the people that pick themselves as that from what I know of the person and the character they pick, it totally is almost bang on. So it's almost like you can envision yourself as playing that character and that you have some of those roles. It's not like, well, they're super action oriented and man, they kick some butt. So that's why I want to be them. It's just how they play the role, how they talk, how they act, how they interact. And you can see those elements in the person that you're talking with. So I think that's pretty cool. I hope after you watch both movies that you associate me more with the main character from the Spanish apartment than you do from the Kill Bill character. <laughs> uh, for me, the, the, the Kill Bill volume one, it's the artistry of the movie. The, the combination of the acting, the scenery, the music come together so beautifully that it's an enriched, not an enriching experience, it's an all-encompassing experience. You really get soaked into the movie and you want to see the quote-unquote good guy, even yep. though it's a female character, right? I know it's an outdated sexist term, but you want to see the good guy win. Love it. All right, well... Lylan, I think that that was brilliant. Uh, we're going to do a version two. You broke the record for the longest interview that I've done yet. So that's why we're doing a version two, because there's so much more we're going to talk about. Um, but brilliantly done. And the way we like to end these is we like to give you the last word. So whatever you feel that you want to share to investors or to startups, we give you the last word. The mic's yours. Take it over. Uh, but again, thank you very much for your time today and really appreciated everything that you've shared. As I always do, I took lots of notes. I'm uh, the note-taking king on this stuff, but big fan, learned a lot. And thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. My advice is to be kind to each other. And not only during these challenging COVID times, but even once we get past all of this, that kindness is something for life understanding that other people might be putting on a front or an appearance that things are going great and they might crack once in a blue moon and understand that there might be more than meets the eye. Um, that I've, I have friends who've confided in me some situations that everything looked great and then it actually wasn't. And so 
don't just assume that a situation's wonderful with someone if there's someone you care about. And it doesn't need to be your, your BFF or a family member. It can just be someone that you know a little bit, but you care for. And it's okay to say, is that, find your own way of articulating that I care for you. And if you need me for something, you know, I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm not forcing this upon you, but, uh, but I'm here for you. And that's should happen not only during these COVID times, but for life. Well shared. Brilliant. I like it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah. And thanks for your time. Fantastic. My pleasure. Okay. That was honestly, that was great. Another fantastic interview. Big fan. Um, loved all the things he's done. He used so many different uh, ways to uh, tie everything together and yeah, from all the companies he's worked with, being in, in venture side, all the VC experience, the things you need to do in order to kind of get VCs interested and excited about you. Uh, some of his background he didn't talk about, but from Mike, IBM to Microsoft, he was an umpire. Uh, yeah, he's got a lot of cool things. So uh, really worth, worth the, uh, the listen and uh, really enjoyed uh, the analogies and, and how uh, he dove into um, the VC side and the things that they look for and how important the CEO really is and the team behind that CEO. Thank you, guys. Peace.